As we've been looking through this uh, series, we've been looking at God's uh, judgment, uh, not only on uh, the unrighteous world, as he talked about in Romans chapter 1, but in this series, we've been looking at how God has a judgment day planned for those who find themselves uh, living the moral life, who find themselves trying to live up to the standard of God's written law. And he says, if, if you do this, trying to attain some righteousness on your own, uh, then you will find out that you uh, will fail on that judgment day because it's not about you keeping the, the written law uh, as much as it is having a relationship with the law giver. And for the first half of chapter 2, we have seen that God has put his attention on the moralizers of every culture. In Romans 1, he talks about this uh, disobedient group of heathens who live uh, like pagans do, pursuing all kinds of gross immorality and sin. And yet he comes in the second part of this chapter after dealing with uh, the Gentile group, those that do not know the law, and he puts his attention on those that we know as the Jewish nation. This would not be an easy time for Paul to articulate words of judgment against his own people. The people, the very people that he would say later on in the book of Romans, that I would rather be accursed that they may know Christ He says, I'd rather die and take their place of of punishment instead of letting them all perish. And he brings some words of judgment. It's in verses 17 through 24 that Paul seems to share some words to a group of people who must have been applauding when Paul was talking in Romans chapter 2. Imagine for a moment as as, uh, Paul is writing these words and recipients in, in Rome are hearing this But because of your stubbornness, in verse 5, in your unrepentant heart, you are storing wrath up against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. I wonder if the, the moral Jewish people were applauding at that point and saying, that's right, Paul, they're not like us. They don't serve the one and true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Get them, Paul. This is what it's all about, Paul. Tell them how wrong they are. And yet he doesn't stop there because judgment is an equal opportunity uh, employer, if you will. Because notice what he says in our text this morning as we look at uh, verses 17 through 24. So I'd ask that we would stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start in verse 12. And then we're going to pray a blessing on our time and get into our text this morning. Paul says, starting in verse 12, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we come as a group just like the audience that Paul was writing to. Lord, we come a people who look at the badges on our chest, look at the accomplishments that are written, uh, Lord, in our uh, notebooks of life. And we say, Lord, look at what I've done. I call myself a Christian. Lord, I can brag about my relationship with you. And yet, Lord, 
Paul says, if it's not done in the right spirit, if it's done just to gain accolades and to look better than our neighbors, then we too stand in judgment. Lord, if it's just so that we can say the right things and yet find ourselves not doing right, then we stand in judgment. Father, these are tough words for us this morning. We who spend so much time focused in on doing right and living justly. And yet, Lord, we forget the other part of that passage. It tells us to walk humbly with our Lord. Oh, Father, that we would humble ourselves in your sight this morning, that we would turn to you and that we would give you all the glory, that we would give you all the praise, and that we would remember that it is only through you that we can do all that we do. It's for your name's sake we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> a couple uh, weeks ago, maybe uh, more than a month ago, we received news that there was going to be a press conference uh, in Chicago. And that the prosecutor, the state prosecutor, had some things he wanted to share. And if you remember, of course, tapes were played of phone conversations between our governor at the time and other individuals. Now we know and we've all been a part of the newscast that have talked about this, but we learned about uh, the uh, what seems to be a trend of illegal activity uh, that was going on in the governor's office in regards to the Senate seat that was vacated by, of course, Barack Obama. And as a result of that, there was this phrase that was beginning to be used that if you wanted an opportunity to find yourself in that Senate seat, then you needed to pay to play. And what that meant was, is uh, make sure you bring the money if you want to be senator. Well, of course, we know as we've watched that as a result of that, our uh, Senate has told uh, the governor he can no longer be governor. Now, of course, Pat Quinn is our new governor. And what took place was a series of what we call indictments. The prosecuting attorney went before a grand jury and he shared the evidence that was given uh, to him through uh, phone conversations and written records. And as a result of that, he brings forth not a verdict because an indictment doesn't say you're guilty. But what it says is there is enough proof that this thing should go to trial. There is enough proof that shows some wrongdoing that needs to be explained. It may end up that it's wrongdoing that, that doesn't end in criminal um, uh, criminal uh, pursuit or trial, but it does involve enough that there's some questions that need to be asked. Paul gives some indictments this morning. As the prosecuting attorney, he comes to his own group, his peeps, if you will, the ones that he hangs out with. And what he begins to articulate is an indictment. Now, the Pharisees back in the day, even those that had come to know Christ and found themselves walking with Christ, but still holding on to the law, Paul goes to them and he says, all right, I've dealt with the sinful Gentile who doesn't even worship God. And because of the gross immorality and the gross sin, they will be judged. In fact, the wrath of God, Romans 1 says, is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness. And so he takes care of that group. And then he goes to the next group and he says, even those who know the law, that there are Jewish individuals who find themselves living um, like the pagans. We know that to be true today. Just because you wear the name tag that says Christian doesn't mean you can't live like hell. You can. And we do, sadly, so many times. And he addresses them and he says, hey, just because you think you've got a label of being Jewish or being a part of my people doesn't mean that you can live any which way that you want. And because of that, you're condemned. And last week we even learned about the unlearned Gentile who, who finds himself not knowing anything about God's law, who does not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we shared uh, with great sadness that they too are condemned. But now Paul comes to this final group. And he brings an indictment. And he says to them, you who are moral, you who are just in your own eyes, you find yourself 
guilty as well. Now remember, Paul would have understood this. You see, Paul hung around these types of people. When he went to lunch back in his days studying to be a Pharisee, he would have sat with these people in the cafeteria. They were the ones that had all their food all portioned out just right, making sure nothing had been uh, touched by any unclean individuals. They would make sure that their dress was just right, tassels were hanging where they needed to be, that they had done their readings of the day, had taken care of their offerings. They were that group of individuals that we talked about last week who say when they get into the temple, I am so glad, God, I am not like that man, but that I give offerings that I pray, that I do my due diligence when it comes to my relationship with you. These are the kinds of people Paul liked. And yet Paul turns the table on these goody two-shoes and he says, you know what? If your heart's not right, if you're not doing what you're talking about and doing what you're writing about and doing what you tell others to do, then I'll tell you what, no amount of badges on your chest, no amount of Christianized lingo is going to take care of the issue of judgment because he says you too will be judged. And he gives an indictment, an indictment towards them. And there are two offenses I want to look at this morning in regards to this indictment. You see, in any indictment, there's charges that are given. And what it is, is there's wrongdoing that has been done. In fact, to give you just a a formal definition of what an indictment is, it is a written statement framed by a prosecuting authority and found by a grand jury charging a person with an offense. So who's indicted? Well, verse 17 tells us it's the moral Jew. How many charges are given? There are two. The first one is pride. The first one is pride. What are they charged with? What are they getting in trouble with? What is Paul um, accusing them of? Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God. Now we need to understand something. When Paul articulates in verse 17, when he says, now you call yourself a Jew, Now, in our vernacular, we can find ourselves using that term in a derogatory way. That person is a Jew, and that means something that is less than human at times. In fact, that is the language that even uh, Adolf Hitler used when he would use his propaganda to say that they were the cause of all the ills in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is not some uh, anti-Semite individual. In fact, he's one of them. And again, he said, I would rather die for my kinsmen than let them go to hell. He loved the Jewish nation. He loved the Jewish people. But he's dealing with an in-house matter. Have you ever gotten into an argument uh, with a group of individuals? And maybe, um, I I know this has happened uh, in my own life, I remember one time uh, my mom and dad and I were in the car and we were involved and engaged in a difficult conversation and it turned into an argument and my dad and I found ourselves on one side of the argument and my mom on the other. And at one point in the argument, my mom gave out this, what I felt was a horrendous argument or a horrendous uh, thought to this argument. And I said, are you kidding me? Come on, how dense can you be? Right, dad? And my dad said, hey, son, that's my wife. That's your mother. I don't care if I agree with you and disagree with your mom. It don't matter. She's with me. You know what Paul is saying here? This isn't an outside argument. And we could agree with Paul. We could even say, Paul, I'm in full agreement with what you're saying. But the only person I believe who could have uttered these words according to the Holy Spirit like it was written was Paul, the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin circumcised on the eighth day according to legalistic righteousness, faultless, Philippians 3, 5, and 6 says. And who does God bring? not some upstart who can't speak, who then people would say, hey, who do you think you are? You need to respect, you need to honor. He brings one of their own and he articulates Romans chapter two. And notice what he says. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law 
and you brag about your relationship with God. That phrase there is one big boast about how great these people are. What it is, is it's a uh, credentials about who the moral Jew thinks they are. They call themselves a Jew. Their reliance is on the law and they brag or they boast about their relationship with God. Oh, pride. Oh, what God must think of our pride. You know, as I uh, was preparing for this week's uh, message, I've told you there's one bad thing about being a preacher, and that is that God uses you as a study of what you are learning. I finished up last week, and to give you an idea of my week and bringing you up to this, I finished up last week uh, very tired. My sermon prep didn't get done until early Sunday morning, and I got here and felt uh, like the sermon went well, felt like things were going well, and people were extremely kind in their encouragement to me. Well, great job, Tim. Well done. Good sermon. Great job dealing with the text. And I found myself, that's right. I did do that, didn't I? And you know, pride begins when we resonate on thoughts, good thoughts of other people's encouragement. I'm not going to have any notes if I don't. The sermon will be short. And so what happens? I linger on those things, feeling pretty good. I go to my mailbox in the church. I'm feeling, wow, you know, I'm doing a good job here. And I get this letter. And the letter is from the Illinois State Senate. And the Illinois State Senate has invited moi to come and give the invocation at the state capitol sometime here in the near future. I resonated on that for a little bit. Wow, Tim, I'm showing it off to people. Look, it's notarized. Look, it's this. Look, it's... And anyway, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Then we have a meeting, and after the meeting, an individual comes up and and shares their encouragement again about, uh, Tim, you spoke well this morning, and you articulated a vision. Well done. And he he goes on, and he says, I'm blown away how you do all that you do, how you get all that you get done. Uh, You know, wow, you're one in a million. I am. I am one in a million, ain't I? I went home feeling pretty good. Usually I leave church feeling lower than I did going in. But not last Sunday. I felt good. And my questions to my bride were, am I really as great as they all say I am? (laughs) And I am so glad for an honest woman. And she said, can we not talk about this? Can you see that there are things that need to be done? But, you know, I, I did the jobs that I was asked to do, but I kept resonating in how great... I was. And you know, I wonder what God was thinking. Just like that moral Jewish individual who says, look at me. I wonder what God would do without me. I wonder what he would do if he didn't have uh, Tim preaching uh, at Village Bible Church. I wonder what he would do, where the state would be if Tim wouldn't lead the prayers. (laughs) It's going to get a lot worse is what it's going to be. And you know what God does? And I believe this with all my heart as a result of this last week. I started to think in myself, look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. And you know what God used this week? He says, all right, you want to be in competition with me? You think that all you do makes me smile? All that you do is uh, because of your goodness, because you work hard? Tim, let's throw some things in there. And I wonder if he's got some little dial on on his little celestial computer, if you will, that has my name on it and says uh, one to ten, one being things are going great for Tim, ten being, you know what, things aren't so good. And, And I wonder if God just moved it to number two. And he says, all right, chew on this. And you know what happened? Before the end of Sunday... I began to think so well of myself that in a conversation that I had with an individual, I sinned against that person. And God said, all right, you think you're so holy? You think you're so great? Have a conversation with someone. 
And the thoughts that I had, the anger I had towards the individual, the things that I articulated were from the devil. And God said, you failed me there. You think you're so great? You can't even have a conversation with someone without sinning. You who think you're so good. And then the Lord said, you know what? You think you can do all these different things? You think you're all put together? Noah had gotten sick this week and uh, had a high fever uh, for the good portion of the first part of the week. And we finally said, well, it's time to take him to the doctor. And we take him to the doctor and said, well, doctor says, well, it's odd that he would have this kind of fever for a while. So it's one of two things. It's either the flu or some Ebola virus that he's caught. And uh, the Ebola virus, by, by all definition, is fatal, just so you know. And Amanda calls and says they want to test Noah and they either could have the flu or some horrific disease and uh, we'll know in four hours. And I remember sitting there going, it's not the flu. And I began to, my heart began to break. And God says, a little medical report. Now where's your pride? Little medical report, little flu. It's just the flu. It's all it is, all it was. And yet for four hours, my heart was gripped. How great did I think I was? How awesome did I think that I was, that I had arrived? And then yesterday, my uh, one of my employees at work um, comes out and I'm helping get uh, some grilling done and I've got my plastic gloves on and I'm racking up the pork chops, which is by far the most menial job anybody can do, let alone the boss. And my employee comes out and says, there's someone here that wants to talk with you. And I'm out behind our office cooking in the snow, looking terrible. And a guy comes out and he says, I've been listening to your sermons on the website. I just wanted to come and meet you. I heard you lived in water, worked in Waterman. So I looked you up and here I am, elbows deep in juice and all kinds of nastiness of raw meat. And you know what? God says, you're just a pork chop cooker. You know, you can't have a deep theological conversation with a person when you're deep in pork chop juice. You just can't do it. No matter how hard you try, no matter how smart you think you are. And you know what the Lord taught me? He says, I'll give you one more thing. I'll turn it to number three. I'll give you, I'll give you the common cold. Try to study with a sinus, some sinus pressure. I'll give you a little fever, let you sweat a little more than you already do on Sunday mornings. You know what I've learned this week? I'm nothing. No matter what accolades are ever given, no matter what I can put on my business card, no matter what I can say with my mouth, we are the moral Jew who brags and boasts about who we are. And you know what? If it weren't for God's grace, if it weren't for God's mercy, we would be dead in our trespasses and sin. And I've learned that it isn't about who I am, but it's about who God is and my relationship with God. The problem these people had is the problem we have, pride. Pride is where it all began. Understand that the fall of Satan and the angels didn't happen as a result of lust. It didn't happen as a result of um, issues of anger or issues of um, immorality. It happened as a result of pride. The Old Testament tells us the passage where the angel uh, that we know as Lucifer, who would become the devil, looks at God's position and he says, I would like to rise up to that. I think I'm this. I think I'm that. And pride was found in the devil. And it's found in us. And just because we have some things that we can write down on our list of credentials, it doesn't mean that we are absolved from our sins. But notice what happens. As a result of their pride, something else takes place. And it's the second sin we see, and that is the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption. Notice what it says in verse 19 and verse 20. It says this, It says, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law uh, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Let's stop there for a moment. What do they think that they are doing? 
What they say is, look at me. Look how great I am. Look how wonderful I am. Look at my relationship with God. The idea there when it says that they boast about their relationship with God is they postured themselves in a way as a result of their possessions or their position. And so what they begin to do is say, look at me. I am a Jew. Look at me. I rely on the law of the Lord. Look at me. I've got this close relationship with God. And as a result of that, it is my job to tell everybody else what to do. It is my job to tell everybody else how to live. I live in a, in a house of young children, six and under. And it doesn't take long to watch the six-year-old begin to think because he's so smart and because he's so uh, witty and creative that he can begin to tell the three-year-old how to live life. The six-year-old's got enough problems as it is, but because of this little beginning of the sin of his father of pride, he begins to say, well, I'm six. I've arrived. I can use the bathroom on my own. I can drink without a sippy cup. I go to school. I know my letters. And so what does he do to our three-year-old? Let me tell you how to live life. You know, being six, you may know some things, but you don't know enough. And the problem with these Jewish individuals in Romans chapter 2 is they got just enough information to be dangerous. Just enough uh, understanding of things to cause some problems. And so what do they do? They say, we should be the teachers. Notice what he says. He says, we should be the guide for blind, a light for the dark, those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants. They're saying, it's our job. It's our role. And yes, they're not wrong in that, but they weren't prepared for it as well. They weren't ready for it. This word uh, that we see in re- as a result of um, presumption is found in the word convinced. Look at your uh, outline or your uh, your scripture there in verse 19. It says that uh, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, this word convinced uh, literally uh, is the word uh, patho in the Greek. It means to be persuaded to think a certain way in light of something else. So they were thinking a certain way. They'd become convinced of something. Why? Because they had put, they had allowed pride to well up in their lives. And so what is it, what does it go on to say? They think that, well, hey, I'm chummy with God. And as a result of my relationship with God, I now have an opportunity to go and tell everybody else how to live and what to do. And yet, what does Paul say? Paul is saying, you too have to worry about judgment. You too have to worry about your own relationship with God. You can't just think you can go on and do what you want. Now, before we get to some of the ways that they showed pride and presumption, let's stop and talk about some issues that we struggle with as Christians. Because when we look at the moral Jew, we see the evangelical church. In Romans 2, we say that we are an evangelical. We are a Christian. And we are not just any kind of Christian, but we are Bible-believing Christians. We do what the Bible says. We believe what the Bible articulates to be the truth of God. We brag about our personal relationship with Jesus. Well, I've walked with Jesus. I talk with Jesus. I've got this great relationship. I, I'm a part of, of His family. And all of those things may be true. Understand this. All of the things that the Jewish individual says that Paul articulates are all true. You call yourself a Jew. Yes, they were a part of the Jewish nation. You rely on the law. Yes, every aspect of their life and even in their uh, civics and, and social order had to do with the law of God. And they said that they bragged about their relationship. Yes, the nation of Israel had a special relationship with God. It says that because of that, they knew his will and approved of what was superior because they were instructed by the law. Well, let's stop there for a moment. That's the problem. Because in the Roman day, when Romans was written, the moral Jew was not living the way that God's law had been written. They weren't doing as they were supposed to. In fact, that was why Jesus got into so much struggles with uh, the Pharisees who were trying to live according to the moral code of the law. And what happens? Jesus says, man, you're missing it. 
You look clean on the outside, but you're a bunch of dead man's bones on the end. You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. He says, you look good on the outside, but you're rotten to the core on the end. Can we say that about some of us today? Can some of us say behind our suits and Sunday best clothes that even though we with our mouths speak goodness about God and we speak about how great our relationship with God is, and yet we find ourselves in our actions not walking our talk. Can we say that even though we boast about the things of God and pursue uh, in word the things of God, can we say indeed we do those things? Or my brothers and sisters from a great institution like Wheaton College, can you say that you live up to the standards of what Wheaton College has? That you can say and as you look at the uh, understanding of what is called for a believer, that you would be able to look and the people would be able to say, that's what Wheaton College stands for. That's what Village Bible Church stands for. Or on Monday through Saturday, would they see in your life, I'm not sure why they're there on Sunday, or I'm not sure why they're at an institution like Wheaton College, because they live so much differently day after day. Oh, they speak a good word. They tell about a good life, but they're rotten to the core. Oh, we who call ourselves a Jew, who rely on the law, who brag about our relationship with God, You know, we can do this as a church as well. Village Bible Church has grown dramatically. It's already been articulated. Budget's up, giving is up, buildings are up, all these great things. And we can sit back and we can presume that our our most difficult days are behind us. We've built our buildings. We've built up a staff. We've uh, even are considering two services, and that's that's a lot to sacrifice. And so we're going to sit back and and we're going to let someone else do the work, or we're going to sit back and and just kind of enjoy uh, the work of the past and enjoy our relationship with God because it's because of our ministries. That's the reason why we've grown. It's because of how we have been creative and putting together things like date night and movie nights uh, for outreach. Wow, that, that was a good idea. Man, we're, really, we're really good at this ministry thing. Or we can go to God and we can say, Lord, it isn't about what we've done. You've taken a bunch of worthless people, jars of clay, And you've made something beautiful called Village Bible Church. A radiant bride for your son, Jesus Christ. The moral Jew struggled with his understanding of who he was, that he never understood who God said he was. This rebuke in this text tells us to stop thinking about ourselves. It reprimands us to think that we have any special treatment as a result of what we've done. It rescinds any idea that God gives special favors because he looks down and says, wow, wow, look at what they've done. All those great and wonderful things. Boy, they've, they've, they've done everything just right. And yet they presume to think there are some things. Why would they do that? There are some things that are written down in our text on why we fall to pride and presumption. The first one is, is it involves the lineage, their lineage that they had. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, this word literally would mean one who followed the way of the Lord. Now, we know that there are different terminologies that are used of of God's people. Uh, They're called Israelites. They're called Hebrews. They're called Jews. Now, in the first century, the word Jew had become synonymous of the people of God, those who spoke Hebrew from the area surrounding Jerusalem and and the area of Judea. They were the Jewish people, and they were proud of their understanding of who they were and where they had come from. They had the patriarchs. They had the prophets. They had all these great lineage things of wonderful uh, things that had taken place in their past. There's something about history that either makes us more um, able to uh, puff out our chest or more quickly to back away in shame. We find ourselves here, we, the Jews find themselves in uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, going after their history. Look at who is in our family line. Look at what God has done. You know, we do that in our Christian life as well. Look at who my mom and dad are. 
My dad served as an elder. My mom on the ladies' service committee. She played piano for all these years. God wouldn't uh, judge us. God wouldn't judge a family like us. We're good people. We've always been Bible-believing people. We've always been in a strong Bible-believing church. And yet the Bible makes it abundantly clear. It isn't about your lineage. It isn't about mom and dad. Remember what I told you a couple weeks ago. The judgment of God, it doesn't going to have mom and dad. Your mommy and daddy aren't going to be with you. Doggone it. Keep grabbing it. Um, Our uh, mom and dad aren't going to be there on the day of judgment. Only you are. Only you are. The second thing that we see is that they uh, had pride as a result of the law. The law. Remember, they've got this thing called the Old Testament. They've had all the prophet's writings. They have all that uh, Scripture had declared to them to do this and to do that, to make sure that everything was right. Nobody else was following God except for them. And they were able to boast about it. They said, in our lives, we rely on the law of God. And it says in verse 18 that they knew God's will. It says that they were able to approve the things that were excellent. They were able to discern because they had been instructed by the law. Now, how do we do that in our lives? How do we find fall to sin and presumption in our life when it comes to the law? We do that when we go to God's word and we say, I know what God's will is. And so you should do this. I know what God's will is, so you should do that. So when we look at our uh, Gentile neighbors and friends and we say how sinful they are because they do not follow the word of God and they live in sinful ways and we begin to classify as the Pharisees did back in the first century of this sin being worse than this sin. And we look at our neighbors and our friends and we say, oh, how sinful they are. They fall to this, that or the other thing. And those are ugly sins. And I know I struggle with some sins because I am a reader of God's word. I understand what the Bible says, but my sins are more respectable. My sins are are more godly, if you will. And so as a result of that, on the basis of that, they feel secure. They say, because we're God's people, because we have the law and we live by the law, then we're secure. Notice the next thing that is articulated, and that is that they boast about their Lord. They boast about their Lord. God was their God. He wasn't the God of uh, the uh, Muslims back in the day. He wasn't the God of the Buddhists. He wasn't the God of the Americans. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was the God of Israel. He wasn't the God of anybody else. They had a relationship with him. In fact, he had created time and time again, covenant after covenant with them, telling them that he loved them with an everlasting love and had these everlasting covenants placed upon them. And they're sitting there saying, man, we've got this great God and we've got this relationship with God and nobody else has it. Nobody else can be a part of it. And yet they're bragging, they're boasting. Now notice what the text says. It says that they bragged about their relationship with God, meaning they postured themselves in a way because they felt that they had a relationship with God. But here's the problem. You can't have a relationship with God when you don't teach, when you steal, it says in verse 21, when you tell people not to commit adultery, but then do commit adultery, when you tell people uh, to abhor idols and yet you rob temples in verse 22, when you who brag about the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You can't have a close and cozy relationship with God as it says in verse 24, when you blaspheme the name of God amongst the Gentiles. What does your neighbor say? When you talk about your God, does he sit there and say, man, I don't know why my neighbor goes through all that trouble and pursuing all these things of of religion and spirituality. And yet I listen to how he talks to his children. Or I don't know why they go and they get all cleaned up on Sunday, Wednesdays and every other uh, random Thursday and Friday. And they go out to that place called Village Bible Church. And have you uh, seen how they live? Have you seen what they do with one another? Have you seen the relationship that they have when nobody seems to be watching? And yet we say we've got this relationship with God. And yet God says, if you do, stop name dropping about me and start living for me. Final thing that we see is in the area of leadership. In the area of leadership. Because of their lineage, because of the law, because of their Lord, 
They presume that they should lead. And you know, the amazing thing is, is that the Israelites were called to lead. God blessed them so that they could be a blessing to others. And yet they weren't ready to lead. Just like my six-year-old, they're not ready. They're not able to lead because they have not done what they've been called to do. Notice what it says. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. We can begin to think that we have it all put together, that we can go and tell others about Christ and about how to live. And yet here's the problem. You can't lead, you can't instruct until you get right with God. These people, their hearts weren't right with God. They were stealing behind people's backs. They were blaspheming the name of God, the text tells us. And they did it and all they wanted to do was to be able to lead, to help people out of darkness. How can you tell someone how to get out of darkness when you yourself are in darkness? How can a toddler tell another toddler the good uh, things of life? How can you instruct the foolish when you too are so foolish to think that you will not stand on the day of judgment before God for your sins? Paul levels the Jewish people and he levels them by saying the following, just because you live a clean life, just because you think you pursue the right things, just because you talk the right way doesn't mean you are right. So let's pull some application from this this morning. I want you to write down some things in your outlines. There's four applications I want to pull from this. Number one, you don't want to live with pride and presumption based on the things of this world. Then remember who you are and where you're from. Remember who you are and where you're from. Turn it from Romans to 1 Corinthians for a moment. 1 Corinthians. Paul had all the reasons to boast And yet, look at what he teaches others to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. This is what he says, just a couple pages over from Romans. He says the following, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Just stop there for a moment. You know what God is telling me right now? He's saying, Tim, don't forget who you are. You're not wise. You barely made it through school, but by my grace, you weren't influential. You're a son of an immigrant, middle-class family. You got no noble birth at all. What do you think? You think you're special? No, the reason why you're special, the reason why I let you do the things that you do, because I chose the foolish things like Badal to shame the wise, the non-Badals. I chose the weak things, the Badal, the Badals in the world, the lowly things of the world. Why? To shame those who aren't like the Badals. I chose to despise things. Tim, you think you're all that? You're a despised thing. Why? God, why would you do that? So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Do you understand the reason why you're here today? The influence that you have, the impact that you're having in the world around you isn't because of you. But notice what it says. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Understand this. Our righteousness, holiness, and redemption isn't because of what we've done. It's not because of the good sermons I preach or don't preach, but it's because of Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nothing else. No matter how good I think I am. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Remember who you are. Remember where you're from. Number two, don't talk a good game. Live a good life. Don't talk a good game. Live a good life. Go a page over or two pages over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 20. Paul, again, the writer of Romans says this. 
I am not writing this to shame you. Understand, that's my heart this this, uh, morning. It's not to shame us, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ... For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life in Christ, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I'm not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will not only find out how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. Look at verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. You know, you can talk an A game about your Christian life. But when you're by yourself in front of a computer screen, how great is that A game? You can talk a great game here at church about how good your words are to other people. But how good is that A game when you're talking and speaking gossip about a brother or sister in Christ? You can talk about an A game, how much you love your children, how much you love your spouse. But when it comes to Monday through Saturday, how good is that A game? People, we cannot be a matter of talk because we will not accomplish anything. We will not influence anybody around us, including the unbelievers, unless we live a life. The Bible says, First Peter, we live such good lives among the pagans. Are you living a good life among the pagans? Are you doing it just so you can look good on Sunday? Or are you doing it to glory in Christ? Number three, number three lower your view of self. Lower your view of self. We used to sing a song when I was in youth group and, and I used to enjoy singing it. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He goes on higher and higher and he will lift you up. Are you building your own accolades? Are you the one who's putting together your own highlight reel? Or is God doing it? Are you allowing God to be the one who moves through you and, and changes um, circumstances in life for you that you will uh, be placed in high positions? Paul would be placed before kings and rulers and all those in authority. He didn't do it. He didn't conspire for it to take place. He gave it to God. Understand what we're supposed to do in Romans chapter 12. Turn there for a moment. Romans chapter 12. Paul reminds us, the same Paul reminds us of something. He says in verse 3 of Romans 12, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think more of yourself, more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. What do you think of yourself this morning? The Bible says we're nothing. The Bible says we're sinners on our way to condemnation and hell. And any Christian who begins to elevate themselves goes against the very fabric of what God tells us that we are. So if we're to lower our view of self, what's the final thing? Elevate your view of God. Just a couple verses beforehand, before Romans 12, Paul utters these words, Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of God or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Elevate God. The best way to get pride and presumption out of your life if you're the moral Jew of Romans chapter 2, is elevate God. Don't put yourself at, at the top of the, of the pyramid. Give it back to God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we deal with a difficult text this morning, a text that speaks about uh, us when we look at ourselves as moral individuals. And Lord, we think that based on the righteous things we've done, that you're going to save us. But the Bible says it's not according to the righteous things that we've done, but according to your mercy. Father, we are an object of your mercy because we need you so much. We need you to come and to save us. 
But Lord, after being saved for some time, we start thinking that it was some of us, that maybe it was a partnership between you and me. And we begin to think of, of, of being an MVP on your team. But yet, Lord, the Bible makes it clear in our text this morning that just because we rely on the law, just because we uh, have this relationship with you, that we should not posture ourselves in, in a way that makes us think that we've arrived or that we've achieved something. Because when we do that, Lord, we forget that we were blind, dead, and held captive by the devil. We forget that we are in need of grace, not just the saving grace that happened to us the day that we gave our lives to you, but the saving grace that continues to sanctify us through and through to the day where we will stand before you, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, get rid of any moralist thinking in this church that, Lord, we would be a people who know that we are set apart for a purpose and set apart for a plan that you have, not because of what we've done, because you want to use the despised things of the world, the village Bible churches that are nothing in the world's eyes. And you want to use it to confound the wise, to say that it isn't that people make themselves into great Christians, but God takes sinners and makes them great Christians. Lord, get rid of that thought in our hearts and minds this morning. Rid it of this place. Rid it from the preacher this morning that we would never think that we have come to a place of arriving in your eyes, but would solely give ourselves over to you day in and day out, knowing we will need your grace when we succeed and we will need your grace when we fail. Lord, it is you who enables us to live life and to have all that we do. And let us never forget that. Let us worship you in spirit and in truth so that we will always give you the glory, always give you the worship because you alone deserve it. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross that sinners like me can come before it and be made white as snow. And that through that you can transform lives, transform the lives of every person here today, we pray. Amen.